Hey, good morning, Access. Uh, my name is John. I serve as the executive pastor here. Um, I just want to let you know that uh, we miss seeing all of you, and we are praying for you regularly. And if you're just tuning in today, just welcome. I want to welcome you. Uh, to all the dads out there, happy Father's Day. So today, we're going to continue our series on church and culture by looking at the P word, politics. So I had a friend recently say that there are two things you don't talk about at the family dinner table, religion and politics. Well, we're a church, so the religion one is a given, uh, but there's definitely a lot of obvious reasons why churches uh, are wary sometimes about talking about politics. So let me just say uh, a couple things as a way of introduction. I don't really want to give this message, but I feel like I need to. You know, I don't want to because politics these days are so polarized and it feels like navigating a minefield. Um, I don't want to give this message because um, in many ways, I'm still very much figuring out what it looks like for myself as a follower of Christ to engage in politics. And so while I, there are things that cause me to pause uh, and not want to give this, I feel like I need to, though, because, because we need a better way to talk about and engage in politics, given how polarized everything is. We need a better way. And uh, we need to talk about this because I think in our particular moment right now, I think many of us are waking up to the reality that things need to change. Uh, and they need to change beyond just you know, tweets and posts on Facebook, we need substantial real change. And that's going to uh, certainly require some political uh, engagement and reform. So um, this morning, I hope you will allow me the grace of simply dipping my toes in the shallow end of the pool, so to speak. Because at the end of this message, you're probably going to be thinking, Wow, there's so much more to explore and so many more things that we need to talk about relating to politics. And I 100% agree, uh, but we have to begin somewhere. So this is what we're going to do today. We're going to look at um, a passage uh, from the Gospel of John and Matthew uh, and what that, how that might help us think about our political engagement. And then we're going to hear from two members of our community that I think we can uh, learn from as well. So let's begin a word of prayer. Gracious God, we come to you this morning. We pray that you would speak to us, Lord. This is such a difficult subject, and we need wisdom. We need compassion, courage, and vision. So God, we open our minds and hearts to you. Please speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So before we, uh, before we dive into our biblical text today, um, let's define some terms first, because, you know, when I say the word politics, that can mean, you know, a lot of different things. So when I use that word, I'm talking about, as the Cambridge Dic Dictionary defines it, the activities of the government, members of lawmaking organizations, or people who try to influence the way a country is governed. Now, there's an event in Jesus's life that frames how we might approach politics. And as I read this text, I want you to try to put yourself into the scene. Imagine yourself as a fly on the wall, observing the interchange uh, that takes place here. 
So Jesus has been betrayed by Judas, one of his disciples, and he has been arrested. And he now appears before Pontius Pilate, who is the Roman governor uh, of Judea. Okay, so Pontius Pilate is the Roman governor of Judea. Uh, And Pilate has the power uh, to decide Jesus' fate. So we're going to read from John chapter 18, verse 33 and following. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied, Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. So as you can see, Pilate is trying to release Jesus, but the crowd is getting more and more agitated. So as a concession, Pilate has Jesus flogged, uh, which was extremely brutal and painful, beaten. And in order to mock him, he has this uh, crown of thorns put onto Jesus's head. So let's continue at verse four of chapter 19. So once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from, he asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. And now here's the critical choice that Pilate makes. We'll pick up at Matthew 27, 24. When, Paul, when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. 
I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, let his blood be on us and our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. This interchange always gives me the chills when I read it. Because in it, we see Jesus come face to face with the political establishment. Um, he is under intense physical duress. But internally, he is completely calm. He is in total control of his emotions and his thoughts. He is calm. He is defined. He is thinking clearly and acting in 100% integrity with who he is. And Jesus says two things to Pilate that I think we really need to grapple with as we think about our engagement with politics. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. And you would have no power if it were not given to you from above. Any other human would have just cowered if faced with the situation that Jesus was in. Because this was, after all, the mighty Roman Empire, you know, beyond comparison in terms of sheer size and military might. It was a kingdom that rivaled all kingdoms. But Jesus stood face to face with Pilate, who represented the political power of the empire. And he reminds Pilate, and he reminds us, that there is another kingdom, the kingdom of God. And Jesus is its king. This kingdom transcends all earthly ones. The kingdom of God is not bound to any nation state or geography. It is not bound to history or, or time. It is the source of and authority over all other authority and power. And there is no power and there is no authority that can exist outside its purview. It is an eternal kingdom, and Jesus is its only king. If we claim to follow Jesus, we must never forget that our allegiance is not to the United States or another country. It is not to Democrats or to Republicans. It is not to anything that is below, that is of this world. Our allegiance rises above. Our citizenship is in heaven. And like the saints before us in Hebrews eleven six, we are all longing for a better country, a heavenly one. So in other words, following Jesus is political, but it is never partisan. When we say Jesus is Lord, we are saying that he is the rightful ruler. He is the true governor of the universe. Uh, not Pilate, uh, not Abbott, not Cuomo, not uh, Trump. Uh, and he does not belong to, nor can he be contained by the right or by the left. Now, if Jesus hadn't offered an alternative kingdom, then we would rightly give life and blood to these earthly kingdoms and these political parties. We would be right to stake everything, our hopes, our energy, our resources, our dreams in changing the political systems of this world. 
But that's only if Jesus had not offered us an alternative. But he did. Jesus came announcing the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God. And our ultimate hope is in a king and a kingdom that isn't of this world. And so whether a person ardently loves the current administration or passionately despises it or any other administration or president before it or after it, an overly intense emotion may very well be an indication that we think too much of them, that we are assigning a level of importance and significance that does not belong to them because it rightfully only belongs to Christ. So for Christ followers, I think the principle is this, that our political engagement must constantly relocate and refocus itself in the hope of the kingdom of God, right? Any engagement that we have must constantly be refocused and relocated in the hope of the kingdom of God. Christ's words caution us from moving into the extreme of getting just completely swept up in any earthly movements, causes, or political figures. Um, His words also guard us from cynicism and just utter disappointment when leaders, no matter how charismatic or promising, fail to deliver on their promises. But it is possible to actually move from one extreme to the other. And so instead of over-involvement, we may actually hide behind under-involvement or non-involvement. This is what Pilate does. It's obvious from this account that Pilate isn't this like patently evil monster who is out to undo Jesus, nor is he acting out of ignorance. He knows that Jesus has done nothing wrong. He knows the right thing to do, and he knows he has the power to do it, but he is afraid. He's afraid of the crowd. He is afraid of the backlash. And so he does nothing. He gives in. He lacks the will to make the right decision. And so he'd rather just not think about it. So in an unbelievable decision, literally in a decision that changed the course of history, Pilate washes his hands and declares, I am innocent of this man's blood. Pilate attempts to absolve himself of responsibility. It's like he's trying to convince himself that it's not his problem. And it's interesting to wonder who is guilty of the greater sin? Is it the crowd with their raving anger against Jesus, their thirst to see him crucified? Or is it Pilate who knows what the right thing to do is, but then lacks the courage to do it? During the Holocaust, uh, the church in Germany found itself in a similar position. I'd like you to listen to the sad reflection of one German Christian who lived through the Holocaust and said this, I lived in Germany during the Nazi Holocaust. I considered myself a Christian. 
A railroad track ran behind our small church, and each Sunday morning we could hear the whistle in the distance and then the wheels coming over the tracks. We became disturbed when we heard the cries coming from the train as it passed by. Week after week, the whistle would blow. We dreaded to hear the sound of those wheels because we knew that we could hear the cries of the Jews en route to a death camp. Their screams tormented us. We knew the train schedule, and when we heard the whistle blow, we began singing hymns. By the time the train came past our church, we were singing at the top of our voices. If we heard the screams, we sang more loudly, and soon we heard them no more. Years have passed, and no one talks about it anymore. But I still hear that train whistle in my sleep. God, forgive me. Forgive all of us who called ourselves Christians, yet did nothing to intervene. Today, we hear the screams and the cries and the voices of our Black brothers and sisters pleading for their lives, pleading for justice and equality, not revenge, just to be seen as equals. The question is, will we hear? Edmund Burke famously wrote, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. So many Christians, including myself, have been guilty of this. We have, like Pilate, symbolically washed our hands of politics because it's too messy. Maybe it feels too distant, or maybe we just think, you know, everyone's bad, and so I don't want to choose between the lesser of two evils, so I'd rather just not choose at all. Or maybe we, we wonder, you know, what can I do? What is one vote? Will that really make a difference? What difference does it make if I protest? What difference does it make if I post online? But I wonder, would Pilate have responded the same way if this were the child uh, of someone in his political court? Of course not, because Pilate didn't care about Jesus, and he didn't care about the Jews. He only cared in this moment about his own self-interest. He just wanted to keep things calm, avoid a riot, so that he could keep his seat of power. In the present crisis, there are many people who are waking up to the realities which our Black brothers and sisters have known for centuries. and have sought to change. And I think there are people finally listening, right, who are moving out of that cocoon of our own self-interest. And this applies to myself as well, right? We're moving out of the cocoon of our own self-interest and we're saying, hey, this isn't right. We hear your cries and we're not going to ignore them any longer. We need to do something. And that will require engagement. Uh, this will look like carefully voting, uh, using our money and our resources, lending our voice. And in our two-party system, let's acknowledge the fact that this is a real challenge. Because neither party currently nor in the future can ever perfectly align with God's kingdom. Black Lives Matter is both a diffuse movement, right? It is a statement 
as well as a political organization. And we can affirm Black Lives Matter without necessarily affirming every aspect of the organization's agenda. And so affecting political change will necessarily involve negotiating competing values. That's a reality. It may be tempting to think, uh, I just wish there were a truly Christian, you know, a Christian party. Well, there is. It's called the kingdom of God. And it can only be brought and realized by Jesus. Because imagine if we did have the power to create such a party, who would lead it and what would be its agenda? If you were to ask a hundred Christians, they would tell you a hundred different things. So even as we seek change, we don't place our hope in that change because we are reminded of Jesus's words, my kingdom is not of this world. And so we're not surprised you know, we're not surprised when we continue to see racism. There will always be inequality and injustice in various forms this side of eternity. But that doesn't mean we just throw up our hands and just give up. Uh, because God calls us, his people, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Micah 6, eight. And so we commit ourselves, we commit ourselves to grieve, to lament, to repent, to confess, to act, to lift up our voices, to organize and to advocate for meaningful reforms and changes in our laws. And in this particular moment, to pursue systemic changes in policing and incarceration, which will communicate in both word and deed that the lives of our black brothers and sisters truly matter. So what I've tried to do today is to lay out a way of approaching political involvement. We keep our eyes on Jesus and we look at Pilate as a cautionary tale. But what does all of this mean at a practical level? Um, well, I'm still learning, and I'm learning from all of you and with you. And there are two folks in our community that I've observed um, seeking to practice thoughtful engagement in politics. And I'm excited for us to have a conversation today and for us to learn together. So let's tune in to a conversation I had with uh, Stephanie Trong and Vincent Tran. Hey, Vincent. Hey, Stephanie. Thank you, both of you, so much for taking some time to chat with us. I really, really appreciate it. So this is Vincent, everyone. Um, he's a psychologist. He's married to his wife, Christy, and he has a 15-month-old uh, daughter named Audrey. And then Stephanie uh, is a lawyer who works for The Beacon, and she is married to her husband, Daryl, and they have a four-and-a-half-month-old daughter named Rayleigh. All right. So all of our politically engaged people have daughters. So I don't know if that's a thing. All right. So, um, you know, as we've just explored in the message, um, and as we all know, this stuff is really complicated. Um, and figuring out how to navigate politics is, is not simple. Um, but I just love for y'all to start by sharing with our community, what does, what does political and civic engagement look like for, for you? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, John, I think the, the first thing 
I would want to say to that is just how to be a part of the conversation, just because politics can be so emotional. I yeah. think people can have like all types of experiences, including myself. Like, uh, am I making a difference? Do I really know what's going on in terms of like what the issues are uh, in that sort of thing? Um, does it really matter? And so I think just listening to yourself about what you really think about what's moral uh, for our society and for our government uh, and just to just realize, hey, you know what? I have a voice. I'm a part of this community. Um, I have a right to feel like that. and. Um, uh, I also want to practice that with humility. You know, I, I don't know everything, but just to feel empowered to say, you know what, uh, the first step is just kind of finding ways to express myself and having the courage to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and then finding that the learning comes with that, you know, the challenging, the learning comes with that. So that's definitely one of the things uh, that I've learned. I can relate to Vincent. I feel like um, it starts on that personal level. Oh my gosh, sorry, my cat. <laughs> moving my computer, you know, just by virtue of me being an attorney in a nonprofit organization, um, working in courtrooms, knowing the local judges, um, it forces me to engage because I've seen the direct impact that they can have on a person's life, right? Um, and so I, I feel fortunate that I am in this situation because otherwise it does seem overwhelming. Um, all of our judges, um, you know, local judges are elected. And so on a ballot, it can look like, um, you know, 20 plus, um, sometimes even more. Yeah. Um, and it's really hard to decipher, you know, um, who to choose. Um, but I, I can see it firsthand. Um, so I would say, you know, just uh, being in my field um, has made me more exposed to it. Um, and I kind of shared a little bit with, with you, John, um, I've sort of had to like kind of reconcile, um, okay, you know, how can I have like my personal life reflect my professional life more? Um, because I am sometimes, I find myself in this bubble where I just kind of want to shut the outside world, um, or, or shut the world outside, um, you know, and kind of keep it out there so that, I am able to just like decompress after the day is over. Mm. Um, and yeah, just focus on myself, focus on my family. Um, but a lot of times, like I'm left with this feeling um, that there's something missing. You know, God is calling me to something more than that. It's really more been about maybe what like Vincent said, um, which is like engaging with community, um, with the people around you um, in those conversations and then those conversations spur those actions. Yeah, what, what else have you, you know, as you guys think about your kind of political journey or involvement, um, yeah, can you share more about like what else you've, you've learned along the way? I think, um, you know, one thing I learned is that um, I can't do it all. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I think, uh, politics tends to turn into like win-lose in a debate and I think you can kind of get very caught up in that and I think there's partially like I'll describe like a righteous anger that can come with that if you definitely try to practice 
uh, how to listen to my voice because I think uh, anger can be uh, in your emotions can really uh, be a signal to what's important to you and, and yeah. say, hey, you know, uh, I, I want to listen to that, but I think there's discernment to figure out where's where's that righteous anger coming from, and that's me and what I want versus, you know, are there things that are touching me that's uh, really true to my sense of morality and, and, and God mm-hmm. is trying to kind of tap me for that. Yeah. So when Trump was elected, I mean, we're talking about politics, right? So like I can go here. I mean, and this is personal experience. So this is what I've learned, right? It's all about speaking from personal knowledge and experience for me, at least like that's, that's the most effective way I can communicate because when we, when we start to generalize or when we start to um, speak for others, it, it comes, becomes a little bit diluted and dangerous, honestly, in my opinion. So for me, when Trump was elected, I felt like the world kind of fell apart for me, you know, a little bit. And I had to piece it back together. And it was really personal because, um, you know, I didn't vote for Trump, um, but my mother-in-law possibly did. We we really don't talk about politics um, in a direct manner, yeah. but I know sort of where, um, you know, where her political leanings are and they're, yeah. they're not uh, mine. And so um, I had to reconcile that because I love her um, and she's one of the most kind-hearted, you know, so thoughtful, loving people in my life. Um, but I absolutely disagree with her politics. Mm. Um, so it's how do you, like, how do you reckon with that, you know? And I still do to this day, it's a struggle, Um, but it really opened my eyes to, okay, this is half of America and um, I can't vilify them. I think it was a really huge learning curve, honestly, when that happened. Um, And yeah, you know, I'm still figuring that out. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, thank you for bringing that up. You know, in in terms of like, excuse me, leverage right like you know so think about the average person in our community is they're thinking like so how do i leverage Mm -hmm. you know the resources privilege whatever i have is there like is there one lever that you kind of yeah that's that's important to you you know is that voting is it giving is it you know what's what's the lever i i I don't know if i can whittle down to one john but i'll try to be quick (laughs) (laughs) uh i think one is i think for a lot of folks in my personal life and who I interact with, there are plenty of people who just have an opinion, but they just feel like apathetic or confused. And so I think um, just culturally, just feeling like it's okay to have these conversations and not know the answers and to feel like I really want to know um, how you feel uh, and not in one conversation, just kind of feel like it's, it's a, kind of a, a fun or a safe place to just kind of share how you feel. And hopefully that helps people feel a little bit more engaged. Um, I think voting's, you know, pretty simple one, but uh, I, I try to, but it's definitely like not, I, I'm always trying to figure out, well, what are organizations that I feel like I match with, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, and I think other people have helped me kind of look for that. Okay. Um, yeah. just, just, I, I've been pretty silent a lot of my life you know, um, and 
with that silence, like I've been complicit. And so kind of coming to terms with that recently, I do think that that it's really important for me personally um, as an Asian American woman to find my voice and use it well. Um, and it's sort of like this itch that I get sometimes um, in, especially like in group settings where I feel compelled to say something, but because of my upbringing, like I kind of, my initial reaction is just like to keep quiet, but I've just, I've had to kind of push through that and it's been really rewarding for me to do so. Um, so I feel like, you know, um, I'm still learning and growing in that yeah. respect, but um, when you do that, I feel like uh, other people tend to notice and maybe are encouraged themselves to kind of step outside their comfort zone. Um, and, you know, I truly believe like, you know, God doesn't want us to be comfortable, right? Like that's not what he calls us to. So whatever that looks like for you, like whatever that discomfort is. Uh, that's super helpful. I think a lot of people, I hear a lot of people resonating with that kind of sentiment of like, yeah, I've been silent for a lot of my life. Now it's time to, it's time to learn to use my voice, right? Well, thank you, you too. Um, yeah, really great thoughts. Um, and I can tell y'all have wrestled with this and are still wrestling with it, right? So thank you for um, inviting us into that, into some of your experiences. Thanks so much again, uh, Stephanie and Vincent for sharing with us this morning. The relationship between church and culture is a complex one. We were not designed to simply consume it, copy it, critique it, or condemn it. We were called to create it, to co-create culture with God. And that means we don't have the luxury of washing our hands clean of political responsibility. Instead, you and I, we must find the vision and the conviction and the will to seek meaningful reform and policy changes that are a foretaste of God's good and coming kingdom. God, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Friends, I'd like to give us just a moment of space to reflect on what the Spirit might be saying to us this morning. So let's take um, just a brief moment of quiet to sit with that question. What is the Lord saying to you this morning? Gracious God, we thank you for being our King and that one day your kingdom will come on this earth as it is in heaven. But in the meantime, I pray that you would help us to be faithful, to have the courage, to have the wisdom of how to know how to engage politically, how to be wise in this world, God. So lead us and guide us for our neighbor's good and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. 
So thanks friends for listening in. Um, know that we have just begun this conversation and I'm so glad that we could do this together. Stick around after the sending prayer for a very special Father's Day slideshow. And let's say our sending prayer together. Loving God, through all our years, let the church be a community where we learn about love and practice it, where we envision peace and work to build it, where we meet partners in faith who wish to abandon everything that cheapens our discipleship, where we discover gifts and offer them. May your spirit guide us towards joy and generosity. In Jesus' name, in the way of Jesus, amen.